You're listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs, the podcast, our audio supplement to the Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs blog about the science, art, and popular culture of Mesozoic life. I'm Nati. I'm Mark. I'm Niels. And I'm Nick. Our third episode is a slight change of pace from our usual format. In this Spinosaurus special, Mark interviews paleontologist and senior lecturer at London's Queen Mary University, Dr. Dave Hone, about the changing image and ecology of the Cretaceous sailbacked theropod. Now, as a prelude to which, we'll be taking a brief look at some of our favorite historical Spinosaurus reconstructions. Uh, to this end, as our keen-eared listeners will have noticed, we are something of a transatlantic conference, for a short while at least, as we're joined by one member of the American contingent of the Chasmosaurs team, Nick Schofield. Now, it seems only right that we should ask Nick to begin proceedings on this occasion. So, Nick, please go right ahead and tell us a little about your favorite Spinosaurus reconstructions. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think you could start with with the first and the greatest. Joking, obviously. But um, uh, Stromer's original reconstruction in 1936, I I love that reconstruction um, because, I mean, for a lot of reasons. I, I think that, um, first of all, it, it's interesting to me how it became sort of the dominant um, style of depiction for so long, uh, unfortunately, because of how the original Spinosaurus specimen was lost to World War II. Stromer basically built everything and said, I know this bottom jaw is weird, but I don't know what the top looks like. So I'm going to just make it a megalosaurid, which <laughs> looking at the phylogeny and taxonomy, he's not really that far off, no. which I thought was really interesting. But overall, I think that um, his, this, this first representation of this dinosaur is really compelling. And obviously it's very outdated by now, you know, he's no longer in that, kangaroo stance and no no dinosaur is just sort of where stromer pieced together what he was able to put together in his head how this animal might have looked i think is just again i, I think it's compelling and I, I think it's an interesting starting point for just how we see the cultural evolution of this creature and 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 its paleontological evolution and i i think that if you're studying spinosaurus if you're, if you're a spinosaurus enthusiast i think that you gotta you gotta look at this thing for a while you again it's very outdated but it's just so fascinating um and so i i think you gotta start there it's worth noting that it does have quite an elongated torso and quite short hind limbs not as short as in um ibrahim et al obviously but it's uh they're, they're pretty much um i mean i'm gonna i'm the risk of repeating myself here quite a bit <laughs> but uh <laughs> yeah as far as more recent reconstructions go it is well and even more historical ones like the one that Niels is coming on to shortly. Uh, it is worth noting how relatively short the hind limbs are and the length of the torso. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I think those are really astute observations. I actually hadn't hadn't even really considered the legs and the torso uh, when I was looking over this uh, and just sort of evaluating it for why it's one of my favorites. But I'm totally right, and I think that's interesting that it's sort of preserved uh, all these years later. Yeah, one of the things that I find quite interesting about Spinosaurus in popular culture is that. For the longest time, it didn't really show up because if you look at the, um, you know, the usual suspects of classical paleo art, your Charles Knight and your uh, Stenjak Burian, uh, they never really reconstructed Spinosaurus. And uh, the earliest uh, in the flesh reconstruction, as it were, uh, that we could think of 
is the 1975 Caselli one, which we, uh, of course, talked about at length on our first episode. Yeah, we're going to get raked over the coals for our ignorance on this, I'm sure, because uh, <laughs> something will show up now. Will go, How dare you, you forget this reconstruction from 1952 um, by, you know, God knows, Bob Jones or whoever. I mean, <laughs> something's going to come up. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it is obviously, of course, informed by the Stromer skeletal, but also uh, something that ties into that interview that we're going to hear later is uh, it is quadrupedal and um, it actually seems to look more like Dimetrodon than anything else. And that goes doubly for uh, for one that David shared from that German card set. That one is arguably, as in Caselli, sorry, is arguably quadrupedal because it is sort of crouching down at a carcass. And sort of the suggestion is it does have quite short hind limbs and quite robust forelimbs that it could possibly lean on. But I'm not sure if it's um, necessarily intended to be fully quadrupedal. Whereas the one you mentioned just now, the David um, showed us earlier on, it's uh, that's definitely basically just... Dimetrodon. It, it really, yes. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely a quadruped. There, there were a few like it. Yeah. And if you're looking for context about that card, we don't have it because we have no idea who drew it. We have no idea when it when it was drawn, but we knew that it was in a German card set, probably from the late 80s, early 90s. And that's all David's fault. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and uh, then, of course, you, uh, you go into the 80s when Spinosaurus settles into more of a generic carnosaur shape right where it's basically allosaurus the way allosaurus was portrayed in the 80s which is not very much like we would portray allosaurus now it usually had a very rounded head yeah at least um some art a lot of artists are doing it that way some artists like um greg paul and mark hallett and the like were actually paying attention but um, a lot of artists were quite content uh, to not to smooth over the unfortunate lumpy bits on allosaurus head and make it look a bit more um a bit more reptilian or like lizardy, if you want. But yeah, as far as the generic um, the carnosaurs, spinosaurs go, um, they pretty much last until baryonyx was described, and then suddenly it's like, oh, this this actually looks quite a bit like it might be related. Yeah. And suddenly you start seeing the the ones with the more crocodilian-looking snout. And who were the first people to do that? Good question. I think um, one that you mentioned uh, earlier this week was probably Louise Ray in uh, 1993. Another very early one that does have that typical spinosaur head is the one by Jan Sovak. Have we seen that one? Yeah, I've only just seen that thanks to you, Niels. And as you can see, it's uh, already beginning to look more like a spinosaur. Like we would recognize it, but the neck is oddly short, isn't it? Yeah, I can see what you mean. It's sort of, it's almost halfway, isn't it? It's got, it hasn't quite got as elongate a jaw as the, for example, rays or um, that green rose obscure green rose horn one that pops up in ultimate dinosaur book but it's nevertheless yeah it's got more a more elongated head um and a weirdly short bulldog neck for some reason and you know as you say it's uh it's it's sort of halfway between classical and modern and that's the thing with spinosaurus isn't it every reconstruction of spinosaurus is in its own way a time capsule yeah it's really interesting to see the evolution of it um much the same way i mean iguanodon has always been used as the classic example of this sort of paleo or reconstruction time capsule where you go from crystal palace to dolo to um skip over several decades to uh, david norman and then it becomes this more quadrupedal animal again but obviously with a more modern more modern anatomy more modern view um spinosaurus evolves as you say from the stroma um sort of a generic carnosaur but also a little bit weird version to the we can't be bothered anymore it's a generic carnosaur with a sailed accessory version to the more crock-headed spinosaur Spinosaurish version. Yeah. And then in the late 90s, uh, Suko Maima shows up 
and we begin to get this understanding that there is such a thing as a spinosaurid family of these really strange, really specialized, long-snouted theropods, and that Spinosaurus obviously is one of those. Yes, and they like to eat fish. And then comes the year uh, 2001, in which nothing relevant to Spinosaurus happens <laughs> whatsoever. No, nothing. Nope, not at all. Can't think of anything, really. <laughs> all of a sudden, we get 3,000 papers on the blessed creature. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but significantly, in 2005, we get a reconstruction of the skull by Cristiano Del Sasso. And Indeed, that yes. proves highly influential. That spawns a million, um, well, a million paleo arts. <laughs> um, because the skull now looks quite different to how it was previously imagined. Obviously, the, the crocodile snout, the elongated snout thing had already come along. Um, particularly post Baryonyx and post Suchomimus, but now it's revealed it's got this rosette of teeth on the end, um, and that very pronounced kink, very, and also very narrow snout. So that inspires a lot of reconstructions. And it's in 2008 that one well, I wanted to mention comes along. Oh yeah, because it's the uh, I'm finally going to get a toy in. Oh yes, yes, that's right. I'm going to get a toy in this podcast. Take that, Niels. Can I edit this out? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. <laughs> and it's the 2008 Carney Kiki collection model, which sculpted by Forrest Rogers. And um, it's, for me, it's just a, a wonderfully uh, a wonderfully elegant sort of uh, flowing sculpt. The toy, the toy itself is, you know, you, you get a very good impression there. I mean, apart from the teeth being a bit blunted um, and the paint job not being necessarily as good as it could be, it's, it's, an, it's a mass produced toy though so you know we can expect so much but it still preserves a lot of the fine detail on the sculpt and there's just lots and lots of very nice small touches all over it and as i said it looks very flowing and very organic very um possibly a little bit too svelte but it obviously has a near perfect um reproduction of that dalsasso reconstruction stuck on the front so the head for the time is there really wasn't a spinosaur figure at the time but better than this for just for the head alone it's quite a nice, low, long-looking beast. And um, so, yeah, definitely a favourite in my collection. And it really contrasts with the 1990s model, which uh, was definitely an Allosaurus with a sail stuck on it. <laughs> Although it, it didn't half look cheerful. Yeah. Say that. It's a nice toy, I'll grant you that. And um, I, I would say the uh, Louise Ray one from Tom Holtz's book, that would be from around the same time. Yeah, so that was another one I wanted to mention. Um, so slightly earlier, actually, uh, it, obviously it, it is 2007 at the latest because it does appear in the Holtzopedia, but it's just such a fun reconstruction, obviously in much the same vein. So for, by today's standards, it has the legs are too long and various other bits and pieces are wrong with it. But um, for the time, it's pretty much spot on. And it's sort of typical Louise with a great perspective, an unusual perspective, lots of vibrant color, but not not too ridiculous and the snout is yellow the snout is yellow and it kind of almost looks like it has this keratinous covering on the top which is um wasn't very hard cornified skin maybe which is a bit of a louise thing as well um but what i really like about it i said apart from the perspective is the fact that it's got this swallowing this huge fish that's with the tail of the fish sticking up out of its mouth and it's he's given it this um um hypothetical um throat pouch so like a bit like a pelican he's got this um well actually various various birds really it's got this big expanding pouch that it's this fish is being gulped down into and i don't know it's just 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 a great fun piece and very striking um so it's one of my favorites from it's a very typical louise i think if you like louise well have we got a spinosaurus for you (laughs) 
Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very Louise. It's, it's, it's Louise at his best, I think. Yeah, uh, staying in the same era, 2011. Yeah, and that's sort of where we go into. I'm. Mean, it's the same. The same sort of. I guess body plan, for lack of a better term, expressed in Pale Or. It sort of continues just before that 2014 mark, obviously. Um, and a big hallmark, a, a big public hallmark of Spinosaurus you see at that time is uh, BBC's Planet Dinosaur. Um, and that was uh, created for television um, by Nigel Patterson and Phil Dobry um, and narrated by John Hurt. Um, what I like about this this construction is is that up till now, we've only been talking about just straight art. And this is actually CGI quality of, of sort of showing the behavioral ecology of Spinosaurus. And it like it's, it retains a lot of those features that that Mark was talking about earlier. Um, and it and it really shows how they were functional um, in the environment in which Spinosaurus was living. And I, I think that's particularly transformative um, for how people sort of envision uh, this dinosaur. Uh, at the time, I think it was remarkable for for sort of paving the way to a better common understanding of of what Spinosaurus kind of was all about. Yeah, because the science was there by the time this was in place, but mm-hmm. from a public um, perspective, you know, certain depictions of Spinosaurus really dominated the public imagination. I have and no I think idea what you're talking dinosaur... about. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, not at all. <laughs> um. And I think this sort of paves the way. And I, I mean, I'd argue that it, it, it makes, you know, following reconstructions it's sort of easier to, to accept and sort of adopt. But I, that's my own opinion. But uh, that's, you know, that's why I feel the plant dinosaur, Spinosaurus really sticks out as far as reconstructions go. Yeah, definitely. I think you're uh, I think you're right. And uh, I also think that probably in the light of the of the Hone and Holtz paper, which we'll get to, um, I think this reconstruction behaviorally uh, holds up okay. It's kind of sensationalized, of course. There is that one bit where it fights Cogart on Dosaurus, which I, I think, I'll soon to Dave, I think the producers just felt like they needed to throw in. Like, yeah, but it's like, yeah. Well, well, we think it lived by the water and mostly ate fish and small animals. Yeah, but does it fight another giant dinosaur? Like, no. Then they had to go back and just put that in, I think. Yeah. But other than that, yeah, behaviorally, <laughs> it, it does actually conform rather well with what um, what Holtz and Hone have been saying. Well, it's uh, well, it's it's done now, right? We we solved Spinosaurus. Nobody's ever going to publish on Spinosaurus again. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's it. The book's closed. <laughs> <laughs> like everything else. Thank you, everyone, and thank you so much, Nick, for joining us. And we look forward to your taking over hosting duties for a full episode in the hopefully very near future. And now, the interview with one of the co-authors on, for the present, the very latest Spinosaurus paper, Dr. Dave Hone. Take it away, Mark. So I should probably do like a little, just in case it's sound I should probably do like a little introduction thing, like, um, hello, and welcome to the Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs podcast our audio supplement to the Love and Time of Chasmosaurs blog. I'm not Izzy Lawrence, and here is Dave Hone. Hello. <laughs> Hello. And we're here to talk about his paper in Paleontologica Electronica, namely Evaluating the Ecology of Spinosaurus, Shoreline Generalist or Aquatic Pursuit Specialist. Well, they're also just going to talk um, junk about Spinosaurus art and whatnot. And uh, the implica- well, the particular the implications from this paper for artistic reconstructions and also a bit of stuff about spinosaur reconstructions in the past because that's all good fun um so firstly <laughs> this paper obviously 
you're looking at all the anatomical evidence from Spinosaurus and its nearest relatives that indicate that it's probably not diving into really deep water and swimming actively after fish all the time. Basically, yes. Uh, on top of some other data as well, so not just the anatomical stuff, but we do look very briefly at the ecosystems and there's some taxonomic implications. Uh, and of course, there's some really good isotopic work that was published, particularly a couple of papers in 2010 and another one in 2015, all of which bear on this kind of general issue of what on average um, was a kind of typical ecology for Spinosaurus. Yes, and there's a bit of difficulty there because obviously people people tend to want to be told absolutes um, and <laughs> as we yeah. know, generally yeah so people want to be told it did this or it did that whereas of course ecology and behavior in particular don't work like that you know they're so insanely plastic and variable and animals do things that you wouldn't expect from their anatomy and they don't do things that you would expect from their anatomy so you've always got to couch this in a certain amount of uncertainty um and this is a particularly complicated one because it's weird a weird animal with no obvious analogues and very fragmentary remains much of which still hasn't been described very well right and also anatomy isn't destiny as people are so fond of saying so and you bring up the particular example on your blog and you did in the um, terrible lizards podcast as well of the heron that you saw diving under the water yeah in in japan yeah years and years ago yeah i saw a, a you know what I would call a European grey heron, but it's exactly the same one. So I guess Eurasian grey heron. So, you know, a pretty large bird is, you know, a metre and a half maybe to the top of the head when it stands and it's kind of crouched. And yeah, it, it and a row of cormorants were on quite a high artificial bank above a river. And just like the cormorants, it just dived in, completely submerged and reappeared with a fish. And you're like, oh, I didn't know they did that. <laughs> you're like, damn, back to the drawing board. Yeah. <laughs> Right, but it's but you know we we as you say we've been quite careful in the paper to say we're not saying it didn't swim, we're not saying it couldn't swim, we're not saying it couldn't dive, and we're not saying it didn't do this to catch prey. But none of the specialisations that you'd really want to see in the anatomy are there for it to be a specialist aquatic pursuit predator. And there's a bunch of things which you know actively kind of contradict that, and therefore it's probably not you know, the major thing that it is doing. One aspect stood out to me when I was reading the paper, because it's open access and any old idiot can read it. And um, it's actually quite well written. <laughs> if, so, if, if they've got a couple of hours spec. <laughs> well, it didn't take me that long. Um, but yeah, yeah. Any, old, any old foolish layman can go and yeah. can go and read it. And um, because it's well written, if you don't want me saying so, it's uh, actually quite easy for an, an, at least an interested layman to, to read. So yeah. one thing stood out to me was, if it gets to the point here and stop, flattering you awfully um one of the things that to me was the we said about the eyes and the nostrils being mm. retracted sort of horizontally but not vertically yeah so where you'd expect them to be high on the skull in an animal like a crocodile or a hippo rather they were further back like something that would be sticking its snout in the water rather yeah. than necessarily swimming along the surface yeah and, and that's you know that's not a new idea um i, I don't know about spinosaurus itself but definitely if not the original paper describing baryonyx in 88, but certainly the much longer one, which I think was 92, 93, specifically says this about baryonyx and says its its nostril is re, is retracted 
back up the side of the snout, but he's not at the top of the snout. Um, and so this goes back at least, you know, 30 years pretty much at this point. And yet it is still in more than one place in the scientific literature saying, oh, well, they have these retracted nares, these retracted nostrils at the top of the snout. And it's like, A, that's not what it says. And B, you can clearly see that they're not like that at all. Um, And so, yeah, Tom Holtz and I who wrote this paper and have done a couple of others together on spinosaurs and their biology have made this point repeatedly. But this is nothing new from us. Lots of other people have said it in the past. Um, But then this time we've actually done a little principal components analysis, a little analysis of kind of shape of a bunch of measurements of Spinosaurus and Baryonyx and other theropods and crocodiles and various extinct crocodiles and marine reptiles and semi-aquatic extinct reptiles like phytosaurs and show that indeed there is basically a cluster of semi-aquatic animals for this. Uh, and with nostril and eye position, and Spinosaurus doesn't sit with them and sits much closer to the other theropods. And another thing you mentioned is the sail being rather high drag, which um, did occur to me actually, just sort of obviously just speaking intuitively. Obviously, I haven't sat here and done my research, <laughs> but it, it does intuitively look like it would be high drag, but then you, you confirm that in the paper, or at least you find that. Yeah, the drag stuff that we talk about, so we, we don't go into details, and it's not like we've done any calculations. But drag is one of those things where it's it's kind of a fundamental, uh, you know, bodies moving in a liquid experience drag, just they just do. Um, and bigger bodies experience more drag than smaller bodies. And again, they, they just do. And everything that makes you less streamlined will exaggerate the drag. Now, obviously, you know, very far swimming things like dolphins and fish, you know, are either super, super smooth to reduce drag or they do lots of, you know, there's all kinds of weird quirks and tricks that you can do. So sharks famously have very rough skin that actually reduces drag because they're doing some very clever fluid dynamics with it. But even so, you if you're a quick swimmer, you tend to reduce appendages. So, you know, things like tuna actually fold their fins in. And they, tuna even have little sockets in their bodies for their fins to fold into. Um and there's a general kind of body shape, which is associated with high speed swimming. Um, Spinosaurus is big. So regardless of whether it had like a crocodile like skin with loads of bumps, which would give you loads of drag or a super, super smooth dolphin like surface, it's going to have a lot of drag because it's really big. Um, and then that sail, again, no matter how hydrodynamic you make it and give it a really nice you know, pointy front edge to cut through the water and really smooth it out as much as possible. It's a dirty, great bit of body moving through the water. It's going to generate tons of drag. And those two phenomena, like just general body size and the fin, you you basically can't escape. Um, And this animal is going to be high drag compared to almost anything else that you might compare it to that might be swimming in this kind of way um and i think you know you can state that with a very high degree of confidence without actually having to mathematically work out its cross-sectional area and all the complicated stuff like that it's just a prompt for somebody to actually write a paper that does calculate the uh does all the maths for you because i think it'd be very useful <laughs> well ab- absolutely because that will then tell you potentially something meaningful about how fast it could swim um 
drag isn't exclusively bad because there's things like drag-based swimming, which gets into complexities of... Um, so a lot of paddling animals are actually using a form of drag-based swimming, but that's a subtly different thing. You still want to reduce the drag of yourself. So things like grebes, I think, are drag swimmers, but that's about how their feet work as paddles, but they still want their head and body to be low drag because they want as little resistance as possible. Um, but yeah, you, you definitely want someone to go and try and, not me, to go and try and calculate <laughs> this um, because it would be interesting and it would be really nice to compare it to, you know, there's some decent data on things like sea lions and crocodiles. So it'd be nice to try and compare it to them and see what kind of drag Spinosaurus might be experiencing. Although... You might run into an issue there because of what Scott Harmon has been saying about how the restoration of the sale that's, that's been well put forward in Ibrahim et al. Uh, is maybe a bit hypothetical. Yeah, we, we don't know the exact sale shape. So, you know, there's a classic kind of capital D on its side type profile or semicircular yeah. profile, which has always been the mainstay. More recently, that's been a kind of M with a notch in the middle. Um, but yes, Scott and others have commented, you know, there's actually no particular reason to pick between the two. Um, but regardless of exactly what it was, it was big. I mean, no, yeah. no one's looking at the, the, you know, the middle dorsal vertebrae of Spinosaurus and go, oh, it didn't stick up that much. You know, there's a meter <laughs> and a half of neural spine on there. Yeah, it is ridiculous. It, it, it is, you know, something big is there. You can argue about exactly what its outline was or exactly how much it stuck out or quite how fat it was or what had been padded with it. But you've got something sticking a metre and a half plus above the middle of the vertebrae, wherein a comparably sized tyrannosaur, that might be 20 centimetres of neural spine. So there's a lot there. There just is. What's- this is possibly completely tangential here, but what's interesting about the neural spines is that um, I noticed that Baryonyx has rather tall neural spines, well, nothing like Spinosaurus, but that also has rather tall um, vertebrae. There's a synocouple of them. Yeah, um, so all the Spinosaurs do. I mean, the, the Ichthyovenita stuff shows really big ones um, for the dorsal neural spine. So Ichthyovenita is the one from, I'm going to say Laos rather than Thailand, but I can't remember exactly off the top of my head. I think it's Laos. Now I'm wondering if I'm saying Laos correctly. Um, probably. Uh, but yeah, that, that, that's definitely got them. But yeah, Baryonyx has got something that's probably similar to Acrocanthosaurus that people would be familiar yeah. with. Um, I think it's a little bit less than Beckel Spinax. So there's a bunch of other theropods that do have relatively tall dorsal neural spines. Spinosaurus is clearly an exception to that, although Ichthyovenator looks yeah. like it's got something not far off. So it's clearly not the only one that's... I, th- I think it's probably fair to say the spinosaurs as a whole have tall neural spines. Within that, what we see so far, Baryonyx and Suchomimus, the Baryonychines, are short for long neural spines, and the spinosaurines are ludicrous by almost any stretch of the imagination. They're, they're like extreme, you know, with just an X on the front, like 90s kind of uh, marketing extreme. The extreme yeah, with, with three X's in. Yeah, pretty yeah, much. Yeah, XX extreme. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, so mentioned paleo arts, and you've already put something on Arkansas Musings because you saw it coming about um, the implications of this paper for depictions in paleo art of Spinosaurus. Yeah, and also you obviously you did um, commission Bob Nichols to produce um, God level paleo artist Bob Nichols to produce a <laughs> yeah. uh, 
reconstruction for your paper to help illustrate it, which is basically Spinosaurus standing in some water, dipping its head in the, in the water. Yep. Um, so I guess what, what you're ultimately saying is there's nothing inherently wrong with showing it um, swimming or even diving, but it's all about context. So it shouldn't be presented in the context of that being its default, sort of default yeah, behavior. That's it. I mean, so yeah, so the, the post I wrote was an, an attempt to head off anyone who might look at what we've said in this paper and then look at the you know vast array of stuff which came out inspired by the work a year ago or so of the of the tail paddle and kind of go oh if it's not diving it's wrong um and now say oh well you've got it diving that's wrong the new paper says that's not it i say look there is nothing wrong with that um it's not inherently incorrect but if you were you know if i was putting a paper to go to a book chapter or something tomorrow of the life of spinosaurus is you know is a little side panel I wouldn't want to pick that swimming deep underwater image because that would give a very false impression, I think, of what they do normally. Um, okay. And so, yeah, that, that that's what, really what we're getting at. It's like, you know, we, we think this heron thing, you know, we think we're correct, obviously, but it's like, you know, this, this is what we think they're spending a lot of their time doing. But even in our paper, we talk about them doing a kind of crocodile-like kind of thrust in the water so pushing off with the legs and paddling the tail hard in a kind of like ambush you know the the way basically crocs strike at stuff um we say that's not impossible and maybe they did that i think if they did it wouldn't be a major part of their ecology again they, they show these adaptations like the position of the nostril and the neck musculature and stuff like this for for this kind of not quite dip fishing but you know something like that or or foraging um, you know, and dabbling type foraging, we kind of mentioned that as well. Um, but yeah, if someone wants to illustrate it, you know, jumping into, you know, or pushing off from a bank and water going everywhere as it tries to grab some big lungfish, yeah, great, that's fine. Um, but yeah, con- context is king, and it, it always is on these things. I mean, you, me- you mentioned Bob um, quite rightly, and yes, it's a beautiful piece of work. Um, but I remember having this conversation with Bob years ago, and he had this lovely image of a Ceratosaurus, uh, like in midair. And I'd always loved it. Yeah. It's like one of my favorite pictures of Ceratosaurus ever because of the depiction of the animal. Um, and I said to him once, you know, and I was saying this, like, like, this is like my favorite picture of a Ceratosaurus, but it's literally just painted against a blue sky with its legs, you know, thrown up and nothing underneath it. Why on earth would you do that? It looks really weird. And he said he'd done it for some competition. I think I want to say for like paleo to prehistoric times or, or one of those magazines. Was the theme of uh, dinosaurs being launched from a cannon? Or no, no. And the, the, the idea was someone was to win the artwork or to win the competition. Actually, yeah, I don't think it won the artwork, but the competition was to write a little piece of fiction explaining how that happened. And so it was supposed to be something weird so that there was a scope for people to, you know, hypothesize or not even hypothesize you know just literally make up oh well it was being chased by a pack of allosaurs or oh it tripped trying to cross a log that had fallen across a canyon or, or who knows or, what. yeah there was a really steroidal stegosaurus that managed to hoof up in the air with his tail or yeah something. right any of those kinds of things and it's like and that's fine but for me not knowing that not having seen that magazine i always looked at that piece of art and thought that's really weird bordering on silly 
and that's because the image was always presented without that context. Um, and that's a kind of issue, I think, about, you know, how we often see art like this. I mean, I've already seen it with Bob's own picture that he's done of Spinosaurus. And someone in the Twitter thread said something like, oh, is that how you think it's hunting? Yeah. And someone said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this wasn't me. I just like, saw the thread afterwards. Said, oh, yeah. She said, oh, so was it fishing from under the water coming up or above coming down? And you're like, wow. Um, like the whole point of doing this illustration of it standing ankle, you know, knee deep in water with its snout just submerged in in a lake was to make the point that this is what we think it's doing. And even that is throwing people and they think it might just be an example and that it's actually doing something very different to what we've illustrated. I don't know how you could draw that conclusion from that, really. No, but then that's the thing. Hundreds and thousands of people, most of whom aren't big dinosaur nuts, are seeing this. And so devoid of that context then it's easy to misinterpret it. And that's what I think we we really struggle with with a lot of paleo. I know I've had a chat like this with John Conway along this line of like, I almost struggle to look at paleo art now without some kind of context of what the artist is trying to do. And that's not a criticism of them going, oh, well, your art can't be very good if I need you to write it down to explain it to me but you know you do kind of get that where people do you know deliberately over exaggerated things or you know bob again ju uh, chang tyrannus the tyrannosaur i named years ago bob did the yeah. artwork for that um one of the features that we talked about in the animal was these all, all big tyrannosaurines have this but they have these kind of dishes on these, these like almost egg storage cups that you get on the side of the maxilla, on the side of the face. And we thought yeah. the one in Chi Chang Tyrannus was particularly exaggerated. And so he said to Bob, can you amplify that in the artwork? Now, to a degree, that's kind of shrink wrapping, which everyone would go, oh, you shouldn't do shrink wrapping, and no, oh, you shouldn't be shooting yeah. the bone and sort of through. But it's like, right, but we're trying to sell this to the press and the public, and they're not going to care about the in." The, the bar between the antorbital festery and the accessory antorbital fenestra. And that's really hard to explain to a layman. But going, it's got these weird kind of dishes on the side of the face, and look, here it is in the picture, is really easy to explain to them. So we asked him to do artwork that exemplified a feature which maybe you wouldn't have seen in the real animal because that image is trying to do a job. But again you now see that image in thousands and thousands of places without that context under it. And it would be very easy to say that Bob's done a bad illustration or that I don't understand tyrannosaurine facial anatomy. And neither of those things is true, I hope. Although at least it hasn't become the de facto representation of Zucheng Tyrannus, because there's always a danger of that, that the sort of the first one, if it's convincing looking enough, is going to become the representation of that animal yeah. to be copied a million times which unfortunately doesn't seem to have happened no not not as much as you might have th- i mean the the week after yes because of course it, we we'd got early to the punch and this was before the days where loads of people were creating art and putting it online you know within hours of papers coming out but yeah there's now a whole bunch of them um and none of them really push into that but you could you know from an example point of view you can easily see how that could have happened yeah of course 
Well, um, I mean, the other thing you, um, because I want to get on to this, the other thing you talked about with Izzy in Terrible Lizards podcast, or at least touched on a bit, was historic, how Spinosaurus has been restored historically and historical artistic representations of... (laughs) All over the place. (laughs) Yeah, all over the place, which I I, I want to talk about just because it'll be great fun more than anything. Um, So, yeah, I think a lot of the reconstructions... I mean, you mentioned them having generic theropod heads, and that would appear to come from Stromer's own um, conception of what it might have looked like. And of course, he didn't really have anything to go on other than, you know, theropods like Allosaurus and Tyrannosaurus. So he yeah, just kind of a threw bit, a big theropod together. And a bit of jaw, yeah. Uh, and, that's, and a bit of jaw. That's, <laughs> that's, that's fairly common, you know, for a lot of those things. And even then, you know, those generic theropod heads were often not reconstructed very well. You know, you look at, no, there's loads of old Allosaurus skulls that don't have crests over the eyes, which is the most obvious thing when you see an Allosaurus skull. Um, I, as I was saying to you earlier, I looked at the reconstruction by Giovanni Caselli in uh, Halstead's book from '75, and that one is very much a is, well, it's kind of a generic theropod, although you can see it has actually quite short hind limbs and quite a long torso, which is also actually how. Interestingly, how Stromer reconstructed it. I mean, he obviously drew it standing almost bolt upright yeah. and with a rather generic head, apart from the jaw. But um, yeah, it's curious that Stromer recognised it had this elongated torso and maybe quite short hind limbs. Although I don't think he had a lot of hind limb material to go on, really. Um, yeah, there's the so Scott Hartman's written about this recently. There's the kind of short. Um, I can't remember if it's a femur or a tibia now, but short hind leg element um, from what was commonly called the Spinosaurus B specimen. Um, but then if remember rightly, Stromer himself kind of says, well, this looks really too short for a theropod, so I'm not entirely sure it genuinely belongs with Spinosaurus B, but maybe it had short mm-hmm. legs. Um, but I think that's probably the origin of the kind of quadrupedal spinosaurus which massively predates the 2014 paper that suggested that it could have been quadrupedal and that idea definitely goes back to i mean i've seen illustrations from the 70s if not earlier that show it as you know let's be honest virtually dimetrodon (laughs) i mean yeah you know just a bit more upright and a more allosaurus-y megalosaurus yeah. head and, that, and that's basically it it's got four legs stands upright and looks like a theropod with a dirty great sail on its back caselli's illustration in um halstead's book from 75 does show it basically on all fours yeah um so short hind limbs and the things the forelimbs really don't look that robust there they, they look like they're modeled after stromers which are more like generic theropod forelimbs because he had basically had nothing to go on nothing to so go he just put on. these short yeah theropod forelimbs in uh, with a vestigial fourth finger that's quite prominent for some reason i'm not sure why that was but it, that that then became a thing in spinosaurus reconstruction sort of through the 70s 80s even in the 90s um yeah but caselli draws it down on all fours it's at a carcass so you could argue that actually it's just crouched over this carcass and yeah. there's not a normal posture for it nevertheless Halstead in the text does say it appears to have had quite robust forelimb elements Although, uh, as you were saying earlier, Halstead did occasionally just throw things out there. Out there. Yeah. Yeah. But, but also, you know, paleontologists make those kinds of mistakes because we, we've got to remember that even, you know, academic researchers like Halstead and others who were working, you know, even until the early 2000s, um, you know, the internet wasn't a thing the way it is now. 
And if you, you know, you might get a commission to write a book on dinosaurs and know really quite a lot about them, but you didn't have that easy access to old papers, let alone brand new papers. And, you know, if you're just going to write one page on Spinosaurus and you don't read German, you're going to struggle to read Stromer's work and what on earth had been published since. And so you're probably going to crib from other academic texts or comments in odd other papers, which and is... so mistakes And so mistakes will propagate and, and be repeated, right. Um, and, the, you know, <laughs> you, can, you can easily see how that happened. And, and of course, you know, rumours about specimens. You know, there's, there's, yeah. there's a Spinosaurus arm that's doing the rounds online and has been for a couple of months now um, in a in a private collection, but at least some people have seen it on display and there's photos of it and it's described as a complete arm. And to my eye, at least, it looks like a composite. I think there's enough differences in the colour and texture of the bones that are very kind of sharp between certain elements that I suspect it's a composite. But I don't know that it's a composite. And if it is a Spinosaurus, it's weird. And also, if it's isolated from the rest of a skeleton, how sure are we it's Spinosaurus and not some other weird random theropod? Um, so even if that thing's totally genuine, as, a, as, a, as in it's a single coherent specimen, what, what do you actually do with it? <laughs> but what this reminded me of was, as I said, we were looking recently at the Normanpedia, as I like to call it, um, and in there, Dave Norman, Dave, can I call him Dave? I'm going to call him Dave now. David Norman uh, describes, uh, he basically refers to baryonics, and he, he's talking about, but not in the Spinosaur or in the, even the Carnosaur, and he does put Carnosaur in inverted quotes in 85, which is, you know, good. Um, but anyway, he's talking about baryonyx, but he puts it with the dromaeosaurs and says there appears to be this giant dromaeosaur that's been dug up from a, uh, a quarry in Surrey. And so it's that kind of thing, like it, it, this early, because I guess they just found a big curved <laughs> claw. claw. Yeah, that's the first, first <laughs> then, thing they found. So yeah, that would make sense. And then it's, well, what does that belong to? And of course, eventually it turned out the hand of something and not the foot. But then the, and the same thing happened with Megaraptor, which is... Um, yeah, so, so, so that's interesting because I, I didn't know that dromaeosaur story. And I remember ages ago looking at something on Wikipedia for baryonyx and it said something like when it was first discovered, researchers didn't know if the claw went on the hand or the foot. And I went, and there was no citation for that, obviously. And it's like, yeah, well, I've never heard that. And that doesn't make sense. And I went back and looked at like the Charrigan Milner paper. And like, they're very confident that it was a manual claw and explained why. And I'm like, then where the hell has this idea come from that it was a it was a pedal claw? Um, so and yeah, yeah pre that, that would, Milner. right that would that would explain it. But yeah, and it just shows you how that has managed to proper you know that from eighty five managed to show up on <laughs> Wikipedia in the twenty tens. There is stuff from um, from the Halstead book that's on Wikipedia um, and from. Oh, I think actually it might yeah it might just be the Halstead book I'm thinking of that because I remember looking up. Well, there was one obscure dinosaur book that I had, and I remember seeing one odd remark on Wikipedia, and then that was the, literally the only place where it's cited, or where this this like some an author made up a generic name, and it just it got onto Wikipedia somehow oh, about God, yeah. forty years later. It's absurd. <laughs> oh well. Um, 
But yeah, we've got, got very off track here because we're talking about the first reconstruction. Okay, so early reconstruction of spinosaurus being kind of generic theropodish um, because that, that is basically how Stroma reconstructed it and how are they to know? Um, so yeah. they, they couldn't have known. Um, he gave it a very generic theropody head. Although the uh, the conical teeth are never really mentioned in these earlier... Um, no, and the fact that, you know, they did have a they did have a bit of, of jaw with that kind of, um, you know, that step... And yeah, that also yeah. vanishes. And the jaws are obviously quite narrow from the bit that you have. Um, and yeah, that that clearly never made it into any of the reconstructions. Um, it, it's funny that, so Baryonyx gets published, I was going to say 88. And I think it's even in the same year or certainly 89, Eric Bufto put out a short paper basically going, you do realise everyone that Baryonyx is very obviously a Spinosaur of some description. Look at all these features it has in common with Spinosaurus. And I think that's because Spinosaurus really wasn't very well known at all. You know, it was this one very fragmentary set of specimens described once in German in the 20s and then destroyed. So, yeah, even theropod researchers didn't know much about it. I mean, what we're saying about the narrowness of the jaw, uh, I think we can probably, and the fact that it wasn't really commented on or yeah. put in the reconstructions, that, that we could probably put that down to what you were saying earlier about people pre-internet not having access to the references and the resources. Um, so it was that, that that was kind of lost somewhere. But the conical teeth, though, you think would be a very striking feature because they are very unusual for theropods. Yeah, they 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 are, um, and so it's it's weird that people didn't pick up on that. Um, and I, I don't know why they didn't. But again, you know, I guess, you know, dinosaur paleontology from pretty much 1920 to maybe 1985 is not like it is now. You know, you had really very few researchers doing very little work. And I don't mean they weren't working hard, but, you know, you're talking about, you know, a dozen people or so worldwide. There's a, you know, there's a reason... You know, Jack Horner and Bob Backer turn up on every single dinosaur. <laughs> and it's partly because they were charismatic and were well-known and were doing exciting stuff, but also because who else was there? I mean, I'm going to talk about the um, David Lambert, the, the ultimate dinosaur book, which was published by DK in 1993 and had all that wonderful model photography in it, yeah. um, alongside lots of artwork. And that has a list of dinosaur genera in the back, which is supposed to be quite i mean i haven't gone back and checked like um whether that's all the genera people knew about in 1993 but it's pretty exhaustive and uh that, that, that is seriously impressive for the time um and i want to talk about that book as well because it's got um a fairly early reconstruction of a more sort of slim headed slim mm. snouted uh spinosaurus in it yeah which i sent you earlier on but um it's not the only one, actually. There's another one directly above it, but that depicts them using their sails as radiators, so I thought it was less interesting. Uh, whereas the one I sent to you actually has the thing fishing yeah. with its snout. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. Yeah, and, uh, well, I mean, it, it's a fairly obvious thing when you look at as you say, you just have to look at the dentition and that kind of notch in the jaw, and it's very reminiscent of all manner of crocodilians and things like phytosaurs, um, which you'd think people would be familiar with as well as, as paleontologists. And so, yeah, it, it is a surprise that I think it took that long for people to lock onto that as a possible habit and a possible lifestyle. And even with baryonics, I remember it all being about, well, it's got those fish scales in its gut, so that's why it's eating fish rather than it's got a really obviously crocodile-like jaw. 
I mean, in the tourist, you had um, juvenile iguanodonts, all that kind of thing, yeah. um, bones in there as well. So, again, it's not, you know, Mixed we're diet. never saying it's exclusively eating fish, yeah. merely that it seems to have primarily evolved to do that. <laughs> um yeah but 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 i mean there's a great example of what we were talking about earlier though of you know it's you you don't want to take that as being red you know you know microraptor is the obvious example of this you know there was that microraptor with a bird in its stomach and it would have been very easy to go oh my god microraptor eats birds but we've now got one with a lizard in it and one with a fish in it and one with a mammal in it so yeah. you can just imagine if those four specimens hadn't all turned up relatively close to each other, if one of them had been found in the early 90s and we'd never seen anything else, I can guarantee that half the dinosaur books, probably three quarters of the dinosaur books would be like, Microraptor fed on small mammals. It was a specialist small mammal hunter because we know this because it ate a mammal once. And it's like one specimen once is it not... does remind me a bit of the... Coelophysis is a cannibal thing, which of course it then turned out to not be juvenile Coelophysis bones at all. Right, um, but, but but that was always emphasised. Yeah. It, it was always, um, although most authors did say, well, it might have eaten its young occasionally, and we have this evidence as to why it, that cannibalism was nevertheless emphasised. It was always in the reconstructions. It was always threatening a baby Coelophysis yeah. and eating them, and it was always mentioned. I, I guess I have a bit more sympathy for that because it's obviously such an you know obviously we now know it's wrong, but it's such an unusual behaviour. It's something you can emphasise, but it's I guess that what I'm saying is for the for the baryonyx and you got the fish and the iguanodon. Yeah, we don't know that the iguanodon wasn't a complete chance. And that that's the first time any baryonyx ever ate an iguanodon. Um, and now we, we, you know, we have it pegged for having this really mixed diet and it was just complete chance. Whereas there is really good evidence that it ate fish a lot. Well, right. And that's what I'd say is that the fish is different because those fish scales absolutely line up with that skull shape and those teeth. And so that would be more kind of confirmatory evidence. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm always wary of these kind of, you know, so, you know, fighting dinosaurs, you know, Protoceratops and Velociraptor, you know, are forever intrinsically linked in Mortal Kombat. And it's like, well, but that's clearly a freakish specimen. And we don't know what the background for that was. Yeah, how did that happen? And we don't know that it wasn't just something very weird. Find me four or five Protoceratops with Velociraptor. I mean, not necessarily that intimately entwined, but, you know, find me half a dozen specimens like that. And I'll go, okay, clearly a lot of the time Velociraptor was hassling Protoceratops. It would be great if a Protoceratops turned up with Velociraptor remains in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. But, but there you go. I mean, that would totally change what everyone's ever said about that. If you, if you found something like that. But no, that's obviously a pipe dream. Less, less, um, less likely, I admit, but it, but it's yeah, it's less likely given it's, you know, dentition for one thing. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> anyway, so so by the early 1990s, it's obviously in the light of baryonics, we start to see these more crocodile-looking spinosauruses, as it is. Yes. Um, but they still have a basically stroma-conforming body, nevertheless. And the generic carnosaur head persists in our through the 90s anyway, um, because they can't really prove it either way. Yeah. So. Um, you on, on that same spread in the Ultima Dinosaur book, you have two reconstructions with the low, long snouts. You also have a reconstruction with a more carnosaurish head. Um, although there is a caption saying the skull may have been lower than Stroma thought. It's put there by <laughs> Lambert. So clearly he was favouring the um, the lower the low, skull. Yeah. 
And, and, and Louise Ray uh, also reconstructed it around 90, 92, 93 with um, that crocodilian looking snout. Um, or rather, a properly spinosaur looking snout, <laughs> should be yeah. said, um, rather than the carnosaur head. Um, and, and then that... And then that kind of became more dominant, I guess, as that was the relationship between the animals was better established. And then Suchomimus turned up and the others turned up even before the um, the new, inverted commas, new Spinosaurus yeah. um, specimens turned up. Yeah, no, I, th- I think so. Because, w- you know, once it was obvious that Baryonyx was some kind of Spinosaur, and then you go, well, hang on, you know, those the, the jaw fragments that Stroma had is basically identical to the stuff we've got for Baryonyx, but we've actually got like, half a good baryonyx skull therefore we can probably take a pretty reasonable stab at what spinosaurus's skull is going to look like and uh, yeah i think it's at that point so yeah 88 89 where you're immediately leaping away from that blocky short generic theropod skull and onto a much more elongate and toothy one the blocky skull did persist for a while. I mean, um, how am I going to crowbar in my toys? Uh, there was the Carnegie Collection toy in the early 90s that had it and the uh, Jurassic Park toy that had it. But um, and, it, and it appeared in art as well. It appeared in um, in Dinosaurs magazine in the early 90s. Oh. And we got a few other places. So, yeah, that, that they favoured the blocky head rather than the long head, yeah. weirdly. Again, as we say, me- memes though, you know, how, how old was that artwork? I mean, I, I remember seeing... A book allegedly written by Mike Benton, but one from about ninety five, <laughs> ninety six. Well, I say allegedly, it probably was. Well, no, because what I think it was looking inside is you know. Bear in mind, I'm trying to remember something from my PhD now, but I think yeah. I think it had been written like eight or nine years ago, and they'd simply reprinted it. And so, of course, oh right, it says nineteen ninety five on the cover, but it was actually published in eighty six, which meant it was probably written in about eighty four. Um, yeah, and so. Yeah, and that had the you know the really quadrupedal, almost Dimetrodon like one with Spinosaurus written under it, and you think, well, Mike knows better than that. And then of course you check the, the fine print, and you realise, well, no, he didn't, because this book's eleven, twelve years old. <laughs> That's why it it doesn't have it. Yeah, so we had the um, the more the, the lower heads persisting into the two thousands. Um, so. There's a really great illustration by Louis Ray in the in Tom Holtz's uh, your co-authors book yes. from 2007. Oh, I, I still love that book. It's still, I mean, it's it's dated only in the sense that the science has moved on. Well, obviously that's how everything yeah. dates. But I, I guess what what I mean is, what I mean is that so much of that is still very much on point because it very much was writing. You know, this is what a typical heterodontosaurid looked like, and this is what a typical heterodontosaurid did. And therefore, the fact that we've learned some more details and have slightly better reconstructions and there's some new taxa doesn't change anything in that in a way that a lot of books date very quickly because they try and be comprehensive or go into real deep depth of detail and nuance, which, of course, can date very, very quickly as soon as well, the instant any taxon comes out, that would date that section. Um, but, you know, just saying, well, dromaeosaurids were obviously feathered and they had big, long flight feathers on the arms and smaller feathers elsewhere. And there was probably a fair bit of variation. That information is going to be true for a good long time. Yeah. And you, it can't really go wrong. Um, and so in in that regard, I I still think Tom's book, despite, yeah, that it's now 14 years old and the acceleration of research I don't think there's very little in it which you'd now say is contradicted by what we know, 
um, and therefore it's still very accurate and very informative. Yeah, I had a brief look through it earlier on because I'm in lockdown. What else are we going to do? So I had a quick pull through it, and um, yeah, it, it has it has held up really well. And as I was saying about the and actually the section on spinosaurs holds up surprisingly well, <laughs> given that as you say, there aren't too many bold over the top assertions made. So it is slightly hedging on the side of caution. Well, when it comes to Spinosaurus itself, so and therefore it's aged well. Obviously, the reconstruction by Louis has aged possibly as much as his from 1993 but yeah. that's just the way it goes um and it's still fun because it has the animal gulping down this giant fish and it, he's given it this speculative um throat pouch so this <laughs> fish is causing this throat pouch to expand out which is, oh which is yeah yeah fun. yeah i know the one so and then we had um ibrahim ibrahim et al in 2014 and everything changed Dun, dun, dun. Well, so, no, yeah, but also not that much. I mean, yeah, well, no, but it didn't. I mean, it's, you know, short legs had already been suggested and looked at, and that goes back to Stromer's spine. Stromer. Stromer. being in <laughs> yeah. 22 or 20, it was his second paper, so like 1922, I want to say. Um, you know, there's a lot more of it, but it gives it the impression that it's a very much other than having slightly short legs and a big first toe, it's very much a big spinosaur or a big spinosaurine. Okay, it looks a lot like Baryonyx, not a big surprise. It looks a lot like Ichthyovenator. It looks a lot like Suchomimus. That's what we'd expect. Yeah. It's 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 a spinosaur. <laughs> it's not really it's not really a Dinochiris situation where the material that turns up later is super freaky compared to its yeah, relatives. Yeah, like... yeah Dinochiris had giant arms, but... Yeah, the head and the back are way weirder than the arm. The arms are just robust jaw yeah. and the like, like hump thing. Yes, yeah, precisely. Sail ridge. Yeah, thing. Right. It, it's it, crazy. Yeah, it, it's it, it's that. And, and, you know, similar in a way in in you know my new paper with Tom and the heron stuff. And it's like this isn't news. We wrote about that in 2017, and that wasn't news then because, as you say, going back, you know, your that illustration you talked about from '93 and before people have thought of these things as probably grabbing fish out of the water. You know, Civic's classic baryonyx illustration from, I want to say, 91 of it. Now, there it's hooking it out the water with its hand, but it's standing yeah. ankle deep in water, grabbing a fish to eat. That's... There was a lot of that with baryonyx. Well, there was, but the it's... Thing. Yeah, but it's really, you know, so our, our big hypothesis is the hypothesis that everyone else has been using forever, just with a bit more nuance about what that might mean for moving between sites and a lot more depth and exploration yeah. of, you know, actual information. There's more nuance. Well, right. But, you know, we've Definitely. got the PCA analysis we've looked at. You know, we've incorporated the isotopic data. We've incorporated the new information on the tail. We've incorporated the new information on the feet and things like this to build a bigger picture and a more holistic one and a more nuanced one. But we're still fundamentally saying they probably stood around in water and grabbed fish as they went past. She's really not a long way away from, yeah, stuff I mean, people have said 30, 40 plus years ago. Yeah, and no, I was going to mention, um, do you remember the TV series Planet Dinosaur? And they had a Spinosaurus in that. And that didn't have the short legs yet, because obviously it predated yeah. the relevant paper. But it was standing around in the water, grabbing fish out of the water. Yeah. So, and... It also fought a car corridor on some silly sequence. I think the yes. producers wanted to just throw it in because, you know, that, yeah, but does it fight another giant That's dinosaur? Right. And they're like, yeah, but that probably didn't happen. No, no but you've got to have that in there. It's got to be like a kaiju movie. They've got to come along yes. and just like feed that crap out one another. 
But, but apart from that, it was it was basically depicted as standing around in water, grabbing fish out of the water. Yeah, which is pretty much what you're saying. Yeah, that, that that really that really is it. I mean that that's what we're arguing, and yeah, it's it's no it's no big revolution what we're what we're saying, or at least it it, it is only in the sense that you know there was huge move towards this aquatic pursuit predation idea last year um which has you know definitely been leapt on by huge numbers of people um and we're saying well maybe that was a bit premature and maybe it went a bit too far which it probably did although you did get some lovely artwork from um davida Bannon um no bonadonna yes bonadonna which i can't pronounce properly apparently. uh <laughs> it's absolutely gorgeous so at least, at least we got that that was nice um <laughs> yeah which which but, as we said at the start isn't wrong it's just no I, yeah i wouldn't use that to suggest that if you want a definitive picture of spinosaurus i think that's probably not it no oh quite there we go so yeah again context yes thank you dave for showing up for answering all my questions and providing lots of thoughtful talking points on spinosaurs spinosaur reconstructions animal behavior in general and a lot more besides so thanks again, and um, maybe I'll speak to you again in the future. Now, before we sign off, uh, there's one thing I should mention, which is that all the images we've been talking about uh, over the course of this podcast, uh, both the interview and the discussion before, uh, all the images are actually showing up on the blog. If you want to see them, go to our blog at casmosaurus.com and look for the uh, blog post called Podcast Show Notes where you can actually see all the Im- images that we talk about. Yes. Mark, Nati, uh, Nick, thank you very much for potting with me. It's been a pleasure, as usual. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Happy to finally get in on this. All right, everybody. Thanks for uh, joining in the discussion. Until next time, a goodbye. 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 So long. Farewell. Happy to say goodbye. Thank you for listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs. Our blog can be found at chasmosaurus.com. You can find us on Twitter at chasmosaurus. If you want to give us your support, please leave a review of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We also have a Patreon page, which can be found at patreon.com LITC. Our music is by Rohan Long, who can be found at bronzewing.bandcamp.com. Stay safe, wear a mask, and we hope to see you again soon.